Good morning. Glad to be here with you, church. Um, as I said last week, this will be today will be part two of a message titled Providence and Partnership. Um, it's also the last sermon in the series in Philippians um, that I started almost seven years ago. I think in uh, March it will be seven years. So this is my last opportunity to wear my Philippians shirt. Um, I did that for Matt's benefit. Uh, and then for the next three weeks, um, Alistair will be bringing the Word of God to you each Lord's Day, um, and I think he's going to be in our Harmony of the Gospels series, so that will be something to look forward to. Um, and I also wanted to remind you to be praying for uh, Pastor Brandon and his family during his sabbatical, um, which I'll do in a moment. Um, but let's begin with reading God's Word here in chapter 4 of Philippians in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you somewhere in the pew rack that you can use. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, we'll go to the end. Paul, writing to the church, says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for, again, for this time to come together. And we want to lift up uh, Pastor Brandon to you this morning, Lord, as he is um, on sabbatical. Um, Father, I just pray that you would be gracious to him during this time as, as you would help to Grow his faith in you and his understanding of your word. We thank you, Lord, that he loves this church, that he's committed to your word um, and to the fellowship of this body, Lord. We're so grateful. Um, we pray a blessing for him during this time, Lord, of growth um, and planning. We thank you, Lord, that we can offer that to him here in this church, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive the truth today about you. And Lord, may we think rightly each day of our lives about who you are and what you have done for us through Christ. Praise you in his name. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we've heard about contentment uh, in the Lord because of who he is, because of his incommunicable attributes of omnipotence and sovereignty. And we've learned by example from the life of Paul in awareness of his great trials in life, that the Christian is to know and be convinced by those attributes of God that he is trustworthy. We've learned, among other things, Christians are content even when, in God's providence, he does not remove the difficult circumstances of life. When suffering seems overwhelming, life seems overwhelming, We've learned that contentment is not found in our many possessions, 
but in Christ himself. We are to be content because God is in control. And the world and your life are not a series of random events uh, with no meaning or purpose. We learn that God's providence for his people is often accomplished through love, through the love, prayers, and generosity of other Christians who are gospel partners, and that God's providence is based on the fact that not only does he know everything and have all power to accomplish and control everything, but he has a specific purpose, and he loves his children. Most importantly, we learned that even the worst things that we can think of in our lives are not somehow proof that God has abandoned us, but is God putting us in position to be strong in him for his glory, for our good. Because as a child of God, we learned, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To trust God this way is the mindset of Christians built over time. And assurance based on knowledge and truth about who Christ is, what he has done, and your identity in him. Charles Spurgeon said he heard the story of some good old woman in a cottage who had nothing but a piece of bread and a little water. And lifting her hands, she said as a blessing, what, all this and Christ too? One can say that, can say that, can utter those words and have that mindset because they truly know God. And that's what we want. We want to truly know God. So as we've been looking at the last part of Philippians 4 and Paul's ongoing discourse regarding the church there and their partnership with him and giving, we get to verse 18 in our text. And before we move forward, I want to remind you of the means of delivery of the gifts that the church had for Paul. Whatever the amount of support the church gave through money and other necessities collected uh, by the people of the church at Philippi, there had to be a way for the gifts to get to Paul in Rome. They had to be delivered. And it's by reading this letter, earlier on in the letter, that we learn the church sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to deliver the gifts. And not only did he carry and deliver the gifts, but he himself was a gift to Paul uh, because he stayed He stayed there to minister to Paul, to help him as a gospel partner. Paul described the value of Epaphroditus back in chapter 2 when he said, he is my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. We see right there, Paul described his importance and that he was their messenger. He came from the church at Philippi. They sent him, not only with gifts, but of himself. Without spending too much time on the subject, we also learn that delivering these gifts and entering into gospel partnership with Paul uh, was something that nearly killed Epaphroditus. Paul said earlier, indeed, he was ill near to death, But God had mercy on him, in chapter 2, verse 27, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete uh, complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
Okay, the, the charge that followed from Paul was to honor such people as this. Epaphroditus giving his life in service to, to the Lord, uh, even, if possible, even if necessary unto death, but the Lord had mercy on him. And we can see right away that Paul puts a major emphasis. Now, when we talk about this gift, Paul puts a major emphasis on the sufficiency of the gifts that Epaphroditus brought from the church. We don't have the benefit of knowing how much um, or of what all the gifts were, but that's not Paul's point here. Paul's emphasis is on how the gifts met his needs and how God is pleased with the church's giving. Look at verse 18 with me in, in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul had needs. And as we saw in our last couple of messages, he was completely content in Christ, knowing that all his needs were and would be met in him, however God chose to do that. And here we're seeing the providence of God in meeting those needs through what the church sent him, both financial and otherwise. Paul describes and seemingly overemphasizes the sufficiency of the gifts by describing them as being full payment and more. And I am well supplied, he said. In other words, all of his needs had been met and then some. The extra emphasis in saying and more is the idea of someone paying off your debt in full and giving you enough to put into savings for future needs. Or like a cup being filled so full that it starts to overflow. This is how Paul described the gifts from the church. They completely met his needs. This is what their partnership with Paul looked like and how their willingness to partner through sacrificial giving uh, was, in fact, God's providence in Paul's life. Could God have chosen to do it a different way? Sure. But this is how he chose to do it. And that's what this is on the part of the church. It's sacrificial giving. It's a sacrifice. We should not overlook the language Paul uses here in describing what the gifts are, both to him and to God, which brings us to the last part of verse 18, when Paul writes about a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's talking, he's taking the people here back to the Old Testament. He's, he's making an allusion to the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant. And some of your translations might, might have it this way, um, a fragrant aroma. Okay, there's a point to this, and it, it actually goes back even before the Mosaic Covenant was established. We see similar language and practice when God established his covenant with Noah after the worldwide flood that killed every living thing except Noah, Noah's family and all the animals uh, that they brought onto the ark. When the flood waters had subsided, Noah and his family and the animals, they came off the ark, and the very next thing we read is this in Genesis 8, 20 through 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. What Noah offered 
to God here was a pleasing aroma to him. God accepted his sacrifice. It was acceptable to him. Then again, with the Mosaic Covenant, God put in place a sacrificial system where he required sacrifices to be made in obedience to his word, and if done so, they were also said to be an aroma pleasing to God. Leviticus 1.9 says, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this language is repeated many times in Scripture. So what's the point Paul is making? Why does he describe the gift from the church in this way? Though we in the New Testament church are not required to make animal sacrifices, the idea of sacrificing to God was not done away with under the New Covenant. Christians are still commanded to offer sacrifices to God. How so? How can and do you and I offer sacrifices to God? We just read what Paul commended the church in Philippi for their sacrificial offering. What was it? Giving. Money for Paul to further the work of the gospel. He commended them for this as something pleasing fragrant offering pleasing to God. The Philippian Christians were not rich people. They they didn't have tons of cash lying around. Paul called this a sacrifice because it cost them something. The idea is that something of great value is given in obedience to and trust in the Lord for his provision. It's not that Paul had to burn the money or goods even to in order for there to be and some sort of an aroma. That probably wouldn't smell very good. Uh, so, so they didn't need an actual aroma to come off of this. This is figurative language pointing to the reality that this sacrificial gift was like an aroma pleasing to God. It's, it's making a connection to the, to the Old Testament here. Why were the Old Testament sacrifices pleasing aromas to God? Because they offered what God required of them in faith. Therefore, they were what Paul described the church's giving as. It's the real point of any sacrifice. Acceptable and pleasing to God, is it? Is what you're offering acceptable and pleasing to God? That's what all offerings to God must be. They must be acceptable and pleasing to Him. We cannot offer anything we want for any reason we want, with any attitude we want, God has requirements for true worship. In order for an old covenant sacrifice to be acceptable and pleasing to God, it had to be given in accordance with his law, with what he said had to be done. Anything else was rebellion and disobedience, and the sacrifice would have been rejected by God. What does the Lord say about sacrifices given by disobedient people? In Jeremiah 6.20, it says, What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. I want you to look with me and turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1.
I'm going to look at verses, kind of skip a little bit here. I'm going to look at verse 4, verse 11, and verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 1. And this is written for God's people in Judah and Jerusalem in the days of kings Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And, and is God rebuking them for their rebellion against him and his word? And so starting in verse 4 of chapter 1 in Isaiah, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. And then to verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Then in verse 13, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. The Lord goes on to say he will, he will hide his eyes from them and will not hear their prayers. These are vain offerings. This means they're, they're of no value to God or to the one offering them. They have been offered for no reason. In fact, they will bring about judgment from God. God cannot tolerate the mixing of evil with good. It is not true worship. John described the incompatibility of good and evil in this way in 1 John 1, 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. They don't mix. God is not interested in people obeying rules to check off boxes while at the same time walking in sin and idolatry, disobedience and wickedness. When God's people go through the motions of Christianity but have no interest in abiding in or by his word, what they offer to God is repulsive to him. You may fool other people and temporarily ease your conscience, but you cannot fool God. This is why God asks, what to me are the multitude of your sacrifices? Nothing. They're nothing more than dirty rags. Not a pleasing aroma at all, but a vile stench in his nostrils, an abomination. But by God's grace, this is not the case with the church at Philippi. Paul makes it clear that their sacrificial offering of gifts to him are in fact an offering to God himself. Not only that, but they are also acceptable to him and pleasing to him. Not because they followed a set of rules about how much money they should give and when they should give it, but because of the attitude of their heart, which was to serve the Lord their God, to further the gospel. We also shouldn't miss another fact revealed through Paul's writing, and that is what the church is doing here should be recognized as priestly activity. Offering of sacrifices to God was the role and responsibility of the priests, and now the church Believers in Christ are God's priests doing priestly things. That's you and me, Christian. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's what we do. It's who we are. We are a holy priesthood. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices. Same language we keep seeing here. Acceptable to God. How? How is it acceptable to God? It's through Jesus Christ. Unlike the people of God in the Old Testament passage we read, these people of God were obedient to him. How? By loving the gospel of Jesus Christ, supporting the work of the gospel, by being generous with what God had graciously given to them, by trusting God to continue to provide for their own needs, not holding back because they feared having nothing, by offering prayer on behalf of Paul and other believers. What they're doing is offering spiritual worship to God. This is the command for the New Testament church and for you and I today. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans 12.1 when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, which is your spiritual worship? Paul's appeal here, he's appealing to them. It means that he's calling Christians to come alongside and help. And it's our privilege to offer to God our whole lives and even our bodies should, we de- should he deem it necessary in service to his people for the gospel and his kingdom. Whatever the cost, financial or physical, it is done in view, he says, of the mercy God has shown us in salvation and in humble obedience to his word. This, Paul says, is your spiritual worship. It's it's a spiritual sacrifice. And nowhere in Scripture, and I think we would agree, nowhere in Scripture is this more fully and perfectly exemplified than in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We have similar sacrificial language applied to him by Paul in Ephesians 5, 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The command here for us is to walk in love as Christ did. But also we see here, there has never been nor will there ever be a greater and more pleasing and aromatic sacrifice to God than this, the sacrifice of his own son for people such as you and me. So when God brings or allows suffering into the lives of his children, he doesn't ask us to do something he hasn't already done in much greater measure. He calls on Christians to share in the sufferings of Christ who gave himself up for us. When we offer our bodies as in a willingness to serve, to go, etc., even unto death, we are offering what is acceptable to God. When we give to the work of God, we're offering back to God what has been given us by God. Without God's provision, you would have nothing. You wouldn't even have your next breath. Our sacrifices may be to offer something physical or material, but the rewards are spiritual. This goes back to what Paul said earlier in verse 17 when he said, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. These are spiritual blessings, spiritual 
rewards in heaven through the taking up of our cross daily and following him who laid down his life for you and me. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's Hebrews 13, 15, 16. And look with me, if you would, turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 14. As we look about supplying the needs of the saints here, 2 Corinthians 9, 11 through 14. Did I say 17? I meant 14. There is no 17. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And this is in light of the church having a collection to go to Jerusalem. We can see here the results of, give, of the giving of God's people, supplying the needs of God's people. Um, it's not just about met needs here. It, it also results in thanksgiving and praise and the people glorifying God for his provision. When you and I partner in the gospel ministry, when we give and the money goes to missionaries, to other people, bringing the gospel to, to lost people in this world, it causes them to give thanks to God. This is not unrelated to the contentment in Christ that Paul wrote to them about earlier in, in the earlier verses in this chapter. And this is another part of what brings about contentment. When we are concerned about pleasing God and concerned about the needs of others, we're not thinking so much about ourselves and our trials, of which we have many. We talked about this before, that the circumstances in our lives fluctuate constantly, and we're often in very difficult, painful circumstances, which can really threaten our effectiveness as Christians for the kingdom of God. They can cause us to stagnate by not understanding God's providence in and through life's trials. When we don't understand that, we're left to think, this is random. There's no purpose in this, but that's not true. We need to know the truth. Though we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary, Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, or the things that are seen are transient 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. More importantly, though, than any spiritual reward we might receive, as amazing as that is, is that offering ourselves to God is an act of worship to God. When we partner with other believers in the work of the gospel or or when we are walking in a manner worthy of Christ, we are actually offering up worship to the Lord, which for us is only pleasing to God by being in Christ. We also need to be reminded here that the only reason anything we offer to God could ever be acceptable and pleasing to Him is because of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The phrase, in Christ, is found 87 times in the New Testament. And that doesn't even include all the other variations or similar types of phrases, such as the phrase, in Him, which is the same thing. There is, of course, major significance in that phrase for you and me, in Christ. This is everything to us as Christians. It can't be emphasized enough. Your life literally depends on being in Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. So having proven the trustworthiness of God to provide Through the example of his own life, Paul transitions to making it personal for those in the church at Philippi. And look at the next verse, verse 19 of our text. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. How? In Christ Jesus. We've read about God's provision for Paul through their giving, and now he points out, what the proper conclusion is. That is, like he provided for Paul, he will indeed supply every need of theirs as well. Not some, not most, not partially, but every need fully. Why? Because they too are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus today? How does God supply every need? Where does all the provision come from? How much is there? The text says, according to his riches in glory. Not out of his riches, meaning he takes a small portion out for you and then what he has is depleted. No, but according to his riches. His riches are vast. They're unending. They're immeasurable. 
The word for supply here when Paul uses, it means to fill to the brim, to furnish or supply generously. This is the same way Paul described how the gift from the church met his needs. How the gift from the church supplied him, which was actually, as we've seen, the providence of God. He will do so according to what he has, which again is immeasurable. He has everything forever without losing anything and it is available through the source, which is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 And Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. All the treasures, every spiritual blessing, all things. God lacks for nothing, and He makes sure His children are lacking for nothing. Don't let the circumstances of life tell you otherwise. It's a lie. These truths are what prompt Paul to write his doxology here in verse 20. He can't help but bring everything back to worship by drawing the church then and now to conclude the Lord God is worthy to be worshipped. That we are to never forget the source of all peace, joy, providence, contentment, grace, mercy. So he writes in verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice the personalized nature of this statement. He includes himself and every every single one of the Christians in that church at Philippi. By extension, you and me. To our God, and Father, he says. Not the God and Father, though that would also be accurate. There is only one. But more personally, our God, our Father. This is a personal God. This is meant to be something that they are identifying with together. This brings them together under the same divine truth. That God is not an impersonable, impersonal, far-off, uninvolved being. He is their heavenly Father. And what about Him? He is both God and Father. If one thought God sounds distant, Father brings Him closer. There's no chance that God won't be glorified. There is no chance he will be diminished in any way if you and I do not praise him. But what Paul is saying here, what he's calling on the people to do is to be sure to ascribe to your God and Father all glory forever and ever. In other words, based on all this truth about God, don't neglect to ascribe to him glory in your own mind and to proclaim it to everyone else. How long will the church, how long will you and I be worshiping God? 
forever and ever without end. It's not just now. It's not just when we get to heaven. It's now and forevermore because we'll live with him in eternity. Forever. And because he's worthy. Paul's just written four chapters, ultimately pointing to how and why God is worthy. And here he breaks out into praise that's motivated and driven by the truth about our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also on the basis of all this truth about God and the joy in Paul's heart that he gives his final instructions in verses 21 through 23. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Every saint is to be greeted in Christ Jesus. Jesus, being the source of fellowship and unity between believers, is of utmost importance. There is no unity or fellowship apart from Christ. The reason you and I are here is because of Christ, personally, and how that personal relationship binds us together in Him. Paul greeted them, all, he greeted them all at the beginning of this letter, and, and that's how he's closing it out. At the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints are saints because they're in Christ Jesus. He greeted the saints, including the elders and deacons at the beginning, and now he's telling them to do the same whenever they see each other. And those brothers who were with Paul included at least Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, who Paul is referring to at the end of verse 21. They are the brothers who were with him who had not abandoned him during his imprisonment. Um, Then he specifically mentions another group of saints, not that they are not brothers or sisters, but he was making a point about the fruit of the gospel even while he's in prison. Though he's in prison, we know he had access to the whole imperial guard, and now we find out he had access perhaps to others in Caesar's household. That could be any other government officials or employees or even family members. He mentioned this in chapter 1 when talking about being in prison, and how he was rejoicing at being in prison. Why? Because he was sharing the gospel. In Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He wasn't concerned with being in prison. He wasn't saying, come get me out of here. He wanted the gospel to go forward. So now, those who have come to faith in Christ there are also wanting to send their greetings to the saints at Philippi. And let's not be confused about who the saints are. There's a lot of baggage um, in our time with that word, but not so in Paul's time. When we hear that word, many think of the images of dead 
super Christians from past centuries in colorful stained glass windows. Uh, or, or we use it in a derogatory way to describe someone who thinks they're better than or holier than thou. Um, or some dead person to pray to and ask to intercede for you in a certain area of life. There are other problematic beliefs about saints, and none of these are true. Biblically speaking, a saint is simply describing one who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Who's that describing? Every true Christian ever, including you and me. If you are a born-again believer, you are a saint. Saints are set-apart ones. They're holy ones. We are set apart from sin to God, set apart from this world system to the system of the kingdom of God, taken from darkness into his marvelous light. Don't be confused by the word. It, it is another way of referring to every Christian. It is Paul's most frequently used word for Christians in his letters, in fact, to call them saints. There are no special Christians, super Christians, better Christians, higher or lower Christians, only Christians. Some may be new and less mature. Some may be older and more mature. But they are equally children of God, saved the same exact way, all relying completely on the Lord God. And as Paul closed his letter, he blesses all the saints with what we all need most, the grace of our Lord Jesus being with our spirit as we walk through this life. We needed the grace of Christ for salvation. We need it for sanctification. We need it in our suffering. We need the grace of God in our decision-making. In short, we live by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And thanks be to God that he gives it so generously. As John says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness. There's been a major theme throughout this letter, and it is joy. Not the only theme, it is, it is a major theme. Paul mentions it over and over again. And strangely, it's usually in connection with suffering and affliction. But it really shouldn't be strange to us. It is so clearly laid out in Scripture that God works this way. And I want to add something here that perhaps I neglected to mention in previous sermons in regard to Christian contentment. Maybe you have felt down because you find it hard to be content. We should remember that even the Apostle Paul had to learn this through many hardships. Some of you are new or newer believers, and the Lord is teaching you. You, it's not there yet. You want it to be, and sometimes it is, but it's not there yet. God is gracious, and he will help you. Or maybe you've been a believer a long time, and you still struggle with contentment. Continue to trust God to help you. It's all part of our sanctification, and we are all at different levels of Christian maturity. And Don't be discouraged, but take courage. God is testing us, not so he can know what we're made of or so that he can know what's in our heart or he can know how genuine our faith is, 
God doesn't lack in knowledge. He knows everything about you. He already knows all of it. The testing is for you and I. So we will know our faith is genuine and that God is trustworthy. How does God test us? Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. You see, it's God's plan. And Paul said as much in this very letter when he reminded the church that God has granted to them to suffer for Christ. So then as Christians, James' words are helpful here as he reminds us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's provision for you and I. You see, it is not informing God of anything. It's for our benefit. And James says, don't fight against it. Let the testing do its work in your life. You will never be disappointed by such a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. He will bring to completion the work that He began in you and me. And you can do all things through Him who gives you strength. So we can, with Paul, rejoice in our lives, rejoice and be content in the midst of our difficulties, our trials. It is a blessing for believers to be able to suffer affliction in a way that brings honor and glory to God, that points other people to Christ, shows them that there's a reason why we can be content where no one else is, where we can be joyful where no one else is. And there's nothing in this world or in our lives that makes that more of a reality to us than knowing that our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. So let's be content. doesn't mean things aren't hard or that you don't need help, that you don't need to lean on other believers, that you don't need to ask God to help. Even asking God to take your difficulties away, nothing wrong with that. But don't require it in order to be content, to be joyful Christians. We have much to be grateful and joyful about. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord God, thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word so that we can know what's going on around us, so that we can know what is happening in our lives. We don't have to wander about in uncertainty and in fear because, Father, you are almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, You have created us in your image and you love us. You have sought us out. You have saved us through our faith, through our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful. 
Pray, Father, as we live this Christian life until you come back to take us home. Lord, help us not to be grumblers and complainers, but that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine lights in the world. For your glory, for your praise, we thank you, Father, for your mercy. Pray, Father, for any here today who have not experienced the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bring them to repentance and faith in him. We praise you for it, for all your provision. In Jesus' name we pray.